0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode number 136. Before we start today's show, I wanted to take a quick moment just to introduce myself. I'm Catherine Dunning, the newest member of the Eyes on Conservation team, and I'm so ridiculously excited to be here. I'm a recovering field researcher turned conservation non-profiteer with a thing for merging art and science, and I like to keep my focus on solutions rather than problems. So I seek out stories of the creative, innovative conservation actions scientists, activists, citizens, even dogs are taking to solve the big, overwhelming ecological problems we are facing today. And I'm so looking forward to sharing those with you and learning how we can all make positive change happen. Today's guest is the enormously talented Missoula-based Amy Martin, who is the founder and producer of Threshold, one of the most binge-worthy podcasts of 2017. In the first season, listeners were taken to the intersection of nature and humanity on the complex issue of rewilding bison in the West. And it dives in deep, revealing the issues in entirely new ways. With season two in the works, our producer Matt Podolsky caught up with Amy to discuss the inspiration behind this captivating show. Have a listen. Um, Well, my name is Amy Martin
1: and I'm the founder and producer of a show called Threshold and it's both a radio show and a podcast. And, uh, we're kind of in the process of trying to come up with like a really snappy way of describing it. But the non snappy way of describing it is that we take one big environmental issue and we look at it over a number of episodes. So we're the exact opposite of the, um, you know, quick fix, soundbite kind of culture. We're trying to, you know, nerd out on something in a deep and substantive way, um, so that people who are interested in in that topic can learn. I, I shouldn't say all there is to know about it, but r- really go in deep. And um, you know, I started at think not knowing whether anybody but me would find that sort of thing appealing. And it, and it seems like, um, at least with our first season that, that some other people do find that kind of thing appealing. So that's been very gratifying.
2: I am one of those fans. (laughs) So it's a, it's, it's, it's an awesome show. I mean, um, and folks that haven't checked it out definitely need to, I mean, if you're, if you're listening to this show, if you're listening to eyes on conservation, you're interested in sort of conservation topics like, um, yeah, what you what you did with the first season is super fascinating. Um, so, I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about sort of like what brought you to the point of like, you know, this inspirational moment that I assume you had when you like had the idea to, uh, you know, put together this show.
1: Well, the heavens opened and a bison descended on a, sh- a shaft of light and... I- <laughs> I just knew. Um, no, it was, a. Uh, it was very, uh, um, it was, it was a winding road. Um, I did journalism in college, not, not as a major, but I worked at the public radio station, good old WVIKFM in Rock Island, Illinois. Um, got great mentorship there from, um, Herb Tricks and Kai Swanson, two people that are still, um, working, uh, at the university there at the college. And, um, And I left college, lived in lived in Latin America for a little while, lived in Chicago, and was um, kind of stupidly didn't do radio right out of college. I was totally trained for it. I think I could have gotten a job as a uh, grunt of some sort in a newsroom, but um, I didn't do that. And I don't actually know why I didn't. But I I did a lot of freelance writing um, for about three years, and then I had this whole kind of mid twenties shift. And I spent like 15 years as a, as a singer songwriter, as a musician. Um, so I toured around and, um, you know, did shows and made albums and really enjoyed it. Um, but I somewhere, um, I don't even really exactly remember the timeline, but Five-ish years ago, I was starting to feel kind of unsettled with that, just um not really seeing myself wanting to do that for the rest of my life. I had also started some community music programs here in Missoula, Montana, where I live. And I was loving that, but um also wasn't necessarily seeing myself doing that for the rest of my life. And all along the way throughout my music career, I had I had always just recorded sound, like not just obviously I was recording music, but I was also recording like just sounds of places where I was. I, I gave people little gifts of like weird sounds. Like I just love sound and love documenting things. And, um, of course I've always been a a listener. And so I think somehow that, um, interest in storytelling shows and my own interest in sound. And then, um, I have this whole, you know, interest in politics and society and culture and, Environment, um, you know, actually being out in nature as well as learning, studying about it. And so um, I actually didn't start with Threshold. I dabbled with this other show called Learning Their Place. I started, and the idea with that was going to be combining children, nature, and culture, um, talking about issues of just what it is to be a kid and trying to be a a human animal in kid form and kind of the culture around kidhood and nature and where those things intersect, which is still something I'm super interested in, but I made like seven or eight episodes. And then I realized, um, that I had just cast my net too, too narrowly, too small, um, and really, what I think that show wants to be is like a season of Threshold, like <laughs> like go in really deep in a big, intense way about children, nature, and culture. But I, I was, I was doing some stories for NPR and, and our local public radio station too, and I was just feeling like, oh yeah, like I'm I'm talking to coal miners in eastern Montana, and I'm talking to um, Native Americans about language revitalization and these other things, and I was like, all of these things could be. Uh, a podcast episode or series or something. And I just realized that, um, I had to find my show too, too in too small of a way. And so then from there it evolved into Threshold. And I, I still do have thoughts of that. I'll do a season about children, nature culture, but, uh, Yeah, so it wasn't. It really wasn't like a big inspiration moment. It was more like it just kind of organically grew out of a whole lot of questions and experimentation.
2: Totally, and it's like it's like a series of of inspirational moments, right? Not just all in one burst, but it's a natural progression, right? I mean, that's how these things usually work in reality, I guess. Yeah, Um, is that how it happened for you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I mean, our, our show is, you know, Eyes on Conservation is very different, obviously. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we, it's a weekly interview series, right? So, I mean, the idea is like, we're, we're releasing content every single week, um, on a consistent basis. Um, and, uh, there's been, that gives us a lot of flexibility to, um, to experiment. There was like, definitely an inspirational moment where I was like, Oh, a podcast. That would be a cool way to reach people, right? Um, but, like, those first two episodes, like, are nothing like what the episodes are now. I mean, they're the show has evolved quite a bit, and it's become something very different from what we originally thought it would be, you know? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Definitely, like, a series of sort of moments and, and shifts and and pivots along the way for sure. But, you know, I love, like, I love how you position that, right? Because, you know, you start off talk. I mean, you mentioned this uh, original idea that you had for um, a podcast, for a show um, and then how you wanted to sort of broaden the scope. And, and I, I just love the idea that like you broaden the scope and embraced the idea of conservation as a way to broaden it, because like one of the things that that we talk about a lot on Eyes on Conservation is, you know, we're trying to like make connections and and, and get people to understand that um, conservation really isn't a niche topic, that it really has all these interconnections with all these other issues. It's not just science, it's politics. And I mean, it's it's everything and music, you know, art, culture. Um and so that, that's cool to hear you say that, right? Because I think a lot of people, when they think conservation, they think like, oh, that's such a niche topic. But like, really, it's not. I mean, you can talk about anything, um, is really what I feel like. So, um, yeah. Once you had sort of realized that this was what you wanted to do, you know, when you sort of landed on this idea, the concept for threshold, um, yeah, I'm curious about how you sort of selected the topic for, for season one. I mean, maybe you can sort of just very briefly like summarize like what season one is all about. Um, what was the inspiration, you know, that, that little inspiration moment for, uh, for that, for that choosing that topic.
1: Um, well, season one tells the story of the American bison. I became kind of aware of the bison story when I moved to Montana at the very end of 1999, Having had zero knowledge of it, I don't know if I could have told you what a bison looked like before I moved to Montana. Um, but uh, I guess, in a nutshell, the story of the bison is an uh, kind of an unresolved conservation story. Um, we used to, they used to be 50, 60 million of them in North America. We decimated the herds um, just unbelievably in the eighteen hundreds to the point that at the turn of the century into into the nineteen hundreds, there were um, some definitely less than a thousand wild bison left. And, um, some people uh, say that there were like 23 in, um, Yellowstone national park. Um, there may have been a few others floating around in, in uncounted pockets, but anyway, the point is very few bison. Um, and then we managed to save them from extinction just barely. Um, and I think, uh, it was really one of the first times that we even had a conservation movement or ethic in the United States. And so in some ways it's really important. It's like a time when you, a lot of the patterns of the conservation movement got set for, for good or ill um, in the sense that there was, you know, a lot of involvement from people from far away um, who don't actually live with them. Um, and their input was crucial. Um, the bison probably wouldn't have been saved without some wealthy Easterners who were you know, enforcing it. But on the other hand, that immediately sets up a controversy which continues to this day, which is that um, the, the kind of the control and maybe some of the ethic around it um, is perceived and in some cases rightly so as being coming from elsewhere. Um, like we get to have this thing that we like, but we don't actually have to deal with the negative consequences of living with it. Um And what's interesting about bison though is that we saved them, they managed to persist and then we kind of just went elsewhere. People started worrying about saving elk and saving deer and saving beavers and saving uh, grizzly bears and all the other kinds of animals that we had decimated so horribly. Um, and it was kind of like everyone patted themselves on the back like, okay, bison done moving on. But we never actually grappled with the question of like, well, what happens if they really truly rebound? Like not just where we have a hundred or 500 or a thousand, but like they really start to reproduce and want to have their habitat back or even just portions of it. So to this day, we have not decided as a country, if we're okay with free roaming wild bison, we're okay with every other species that we've saved. We're, we're, um. Some are more controversial than others, of course, wolves, highly controversial grizzly bears. Um, But in general, when we save a species, we kind of accept the fact that, yeah, they're going to roam around. They're going to be wild animals. With bison, we're still in this weird limbo where like we kind of want them, but we prefer that they sort of stay in certain places where we don't have to, they don't bother us too much. And a lot of people are pushing back on that and saying like, no, this is this beautiful wild animal. It's actually totally possible to coexist with them. And some people are saying, no, it's not. So we just got into that, that controversy, um, in depth, um, in terms of what inspired me to do it. I mean, I, I had this really, I had this burst of strong interest when I moved to Montana. And then like many people here, I kind of got tired of it because every single year it comes up every single year. It seems like there's the same voices that go, you know, some people are like, seem to be kind of unreasonably hating onto bison. And then some people kind of are defending them in a way that also sounds a little unreasonable and kind of out there. And it just sort of like extremist on one side, extremist on the other side and no progress made. And everybody kind of looks stupid. And it's just like one of those disheartening, like, ugh, is this really the best we can do? So I kind of tuned out from it. And then I had started to somehow get more interested in it in the last couple of years again, just, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where you're like, I should really be interested and in why can't we do better than this? And, um, but then I, I, uh, I remember asking the news director at Montana public radio, um, I was do, just pitching freelance stories to him and there's so many freelance stories out here that I asked him, I was like, okay. I could pitch you stories on like anything. What what are some freelance stories you want? And he was like, "How about some bison stories?" And I was like, "Yeah, okay." (laughs) And then that was that was right when I was transitioning between. Well, I didn't really know that I was transitioning, but in retrospect, I see that I was. I was starting to have doubts about whether I had set up my first podcast correctly. And I went out and started doing some research on Bison stuff. And I was like, actually, this is way too deep and way too much to do in a news story. I mean, I did some, but I was like, that's not satisfying. And I started thinking of this series. And um, and then I thought, oh, maybe maybe these two things go together.
2: Yeah, there's so many fascinating insights um that you learn when you listen to to that first season of threshold uh, about the bison and i mean stuff that you know i mean stuff that i certainly wasn't aware of even as somebody that you know um pays attention to, to conservation issues and is you know like very sort of attuned to especially like wildlife conservation topics there were a number of things that that were like like, wow, I had no idea that, that that was the case, you know, and I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, this, this sort of controversy that like sort of is renewed each year, which is tied to uh, uh, the brucellosis uh, issue, right? And and that's certainly, like, one of the driving forces of, like, the current controversy over what's going on with bison. But, like, when you delved into the history of uh, the decline and, you know, connected it to, like, Native American history and, you know, the history of, like, the settlement of the West, I mean, really fascinating stuff. I mean, I guess I, guess I wonder, like... As you were going through the process of, like, you know, researching and, and talking to people, I mean, there, there must have been, like, moments that really stood out where you're like, oh, my God, I had no idea that this was the case, you know? Maybe you can, like, highlight a few moments like that for us.
1: One thing that comes to mind is um, when I went out to the Fort Peck Reservation, which is way out in northeastern Montana. And Montana is just so huge, you know, it's like the size of Germany. Um, and so even though I've lived here for a long time, I definitely have not seen all of it. And that's one corner that I hadn't been to at all. And, you know, it's flatter than Western Montana and it's drier and it's, um, you know, there aren't very many trees. And so it, it, it I wasn't prepared for how absolutely beautiful it was. And particularly this guy, Robbie Magnon, that, um, I ended up hanging out with that day. Um, I think I think talking, so, so he's native American, he's a Cineboine Sioux and, um, just, it's kind of hard to articulate, but like just sitting next to him, learning about his efforts to bring the bison back on the reservation while we're driving up through these beautiful rolling Hills, I was kind of simultaneously falling in love with that part of the world, just this un, un, unbelievable untouched prairie and really kind of getting a sense of how beautiful the prairie really is or or was before we, you know, um, covered so much of it with, with mono, mono agriculture, which is what I grew up in in Iowa. And then realizing how recent this history is, you know, like he's, I can't remember right off the top of my head, but I think he's like in his late fifties or maybe early sixties and he told me about how he had never seen a bison until he went on a field trip to the Denver zoo as like, as like a teenager. And just thinking about, How bizarre that is. Like, this is the perfect bison habitat. And he's from a culture that depended on them for millennia. And he's still connected to that culture. And yet, there were no bison for any of those kids to see, you know? And it's just so easy to kind of imagine that the decimation of the bison herds and the oppression of Native Americans is something like, oh, way back there in history. And it's just so current. It's now, you know? It's not even just Robbie's childhood, it's right now. And, um, and hearing about that from him and hearing about how, um, you know, as a little kid, of course, as, like most little kids at some point, he played cowboys and Indians and he's an Indian and how every he's and all the kids were. And he said that they all wanted to be the cowboy because they had ingested already as children that the Indians were the bad guys and not the people you wanted to aspire to be. Uh, So just that, like the depth of, of the colonial influence and how it gets ingested and how toxic it is. You know, at that same time that I was visiting him, they were having this big forum um, in their community around um, uh, alcohol and drug abuse because it's, you know, it's just um, rampant on the reservation and it's, it's, it's a lot of poverty and just, Learning and then and in his mind, this his efforts to bring back the bison are doing so much for the kids in the community to help them give them something positive to connect to. They had a couple weekends before I came; they'd had this big summit. They called it Buffalo Summit, and kids camped out way up in the hills with the bison, and they got you know they learned how to do traditional um, uh, practices with the meat, with the hides, and he was so excited talking about it and inspired, and I just was like. You start to connect all these dots, you know, it's like, it's, um, the fact that they're dealing with massive problems around drug and alcohol are not disconnected from the fact that he never saw a bison when he was a child and that he's, you know, it's just, um, so that was, I, I just, that whole day was just kind of emotional and beautiful and just fun too. He was just like a fun guy to talk to. He was really funny and positive and, um, open, um, I think another moment that leaps to mind is when I was talking to Robert Chester, an historian, and he told me, uh, and this, this is in the show, I think that the fact of me taking that in was something I allowed to actually be in the show, but taking in that people used to ride on the backs of trains or ride on trains um, and shoot at bison just for sport. Like they were just, you know, these trains were going through you know, thousands and thousands of bison. And it was like a fun thing to do. It was something, it was actually advertised, like ride this train out West and, um, you know, and you can just shoot, shoot bison as you go. And and just to be clear, it wasn't like, we're going to stop and have a bison hunt. It was like the train was moving and they would just shoot at, at bison and, and kill or wound them and just keep going. And that is so messed up. I just think that it's, um, In any culture, I mean, it's not about killing animals like that. That's okay. We need food. We need, we need, you know, to use their hides for shelter. Of course that's part of the deal, but just to kill something, just to kill it and and then leave it. It's so bizarre. Um, And the fact that it wasn't just like, Oh, this one time that happened, it was like standard practice. I mean, not like every single person who came West did it, but it was common enough to be advertised and to be talked about. And it was like a fun thing to do. Um, I know it's really dangerous to look back at an historic time through the lens of your current time and, and make a lot of judgments, but I guess I do feel like, no, in any time, (laughs) in any time that's wrong, looking forward, looking back, looking directly across, um, that was just shocking to me. And I think it just speaks to the, um, the level of disconnect between, um, thinking of this animal as, um, something, you know, valuable versus just sort of enjoying the process of, of killing it off. Um, just puzzling, kind of profoundly disturbing. I found, I'm not sure if I answered your question.
2: No, you absolutely did. And that, that was, that was perfect. And, you know, I mean, that's the, the, that, that second component that, that you talked about, about how people would just shoot these animals, you know, from a moving train. I mean, that's something like I remember the moment, like sitting in an environmental science class when I was an undergrad, where we like learned about that. And um, yeah, it's it, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's shocking that like that was the United States and that that was like the value system that, that like that was just considered okay. You know, um, I mean, even if you're a hunter, like that goes so far against like the values of, of, you know, like what we think of as the value system of hunters. Like, in yeah, especially uh, if you're
1: a hunter, I think, I mean, some of the people I've talked to that are most disturbed by that are hunters, just like what, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it also Uh, is maybe something that comes to mind for me because I really feel like part of what the show, what I'm trying to do on the show is. It's, it's as much environmental philosophy as anything else, or maybe just philosophy with environment as kind of the catalyst, you know? Like, it just, it just raises questions. Like, who are we? Who, where do we come from? Um, what are the two, what what are the different value systems that are in play in different cultures? Which ones do we want to model ourselves after? And I just feel like in all these relationships we have with things other, the non-human world, whether it's wildlife or a a particular place or, or rock for that matter, they tell us something, it's mirrors back onto us as individuals and as a group. And, um, that's a mirror that's worth looking at and looking at where it, what are the, you know, what are the descendants of that worldview? Where are they playing out in our lives now? How is that affecting us and incorporated into our worldview that we might not even be aware of. I think just to kind of get to your point about how you're trying to make your show like conservation is about so many things. I, I totally agree. I mean, we're not, we're not really thinking of ourselves as so much as conservation, but just, you know, thinking about the natural world and it it is it is, it's, it's, um, it's really weird that it is often segmented off as its own little like niche when it's like, there's nothing that could be more, you know, universal. <laughs> it's like, we're animals on a planet. Um, that's just the facts. And what does that have to say about who we are and where we're headed? And that's kind of what we're digging into trying to.
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and you know, I think there's definitely a connection Um, between like that thread, like what you were talking about and the history behind, um, bison and what's going on currently. Right. And I mean, I mentioned briefly this, this issue with, um, this disease, brucellosis, um, which is sort of the crux of like the current, like the most controversial current issue over bison and like why some people, you know, why there's all this disagreement over whether or not we should have, you know, free roaming, wild bison. Um, but, I mean, that's something that I think most people are not aware of. I think, you know, generally, I think even people that, you know, think of themselves as environmentalists, like, think that bison are fine. Like, the populations are recovered and, like, they're all good. Um, but it, it's not really the case. It's it's a lot more complicated than that. Why is there this big controversy of wh- whether or not we should have, you know, free-roaming bison? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the best answer for why there is this big controversy about whether or not we're going to let there be more wild free roaming bison in the country is because because it's a values issue and because some people are, um, to some people that makes absolute sense just on the face of it, like, yeah, more wild animals, good thing. And for some people it, it, it strikes directly at the heart of their sense of who they are and their way of life and their future. Outside of any um, any consideration of of the the science, just for on either side, there there's it's a, it's a values issue that a lot of people just have a gut response to it based on where they're coming from in the world. And, um, and I honestly feel like what happens then is based on that values issue. Both sides then try to come up with arguments for why their side is right. You know, like that's what we do, right? We, we, we think that we're making decisions based on these like really sound logical reasons, but really we kind of make decisions and then we go back and find reasons for them. Um, so I just wanted to flag that because I think that, and sometimes we get really hung up in thinking about the reasons on both sides, which are worth considering, but like, let's not fool ourselves honestly, what most people are doing is thinking about it in reverse, including, including the two of us, I'm sure, you know, no one's exempt from that. Um, so uh, the reasons that are given for the controversy, um, are, uh, the, the largest one around the Yellowstone area anyway, is that, um, the bison and the elk in the Yellowstone area have been infected with the disease called brucellosis. It's a bacterial disease that was brought over from livestock from Europe way back and, um, and used to be uh, in livestock kind of all over the country. Um, like my own dad remembered um, vaccinating their pigs for it, you know, because um, it, you, you can, it can cause problems for humans. Usually not fatal, but it can make you sick um, and can be fatal. Um, so in livestock, it's been almost completely eradicated, um, because we're good at vaccinating livestock. Um, but because it got into this wild population, these two wild populations in the Yellowstone area, um, they've propagated it and they've become what's called a disease reservoir for it. So they hold it, they can transfer it back and forth to each other across the species border boundary. And, um, that makes it highly unlikely that we're ever going to fully eradicate brucellosis from the elk and the, and the bison in the Yellowstone area. So the, the issue has then been how to keep the cattle that are in that area separate or or how to keep the bison and elk separate from the cattle in that area. Um, And there are, there are real legitimate concerns about that for cattle ranchers. It can, it can, they, you know, if their cattle were to get infected by brucellosis, they can, have to go into quarantine. It can cost them a lot of money. They can possibly have to, um, euthanize, you know, not just an animal, but possibly a whole herd. Um, it's a big deal. And it's, and it's unfortunately one of those things that's a really big deal that affects a relatively small number of people. So it's like a, a big risk Um, imposed upon a small group of people who feel, therefore, I think like it's very easy to feel like nobody else understands us. Nobody cares. And, um, and like, we're having to suffer all of this risk and everybody else just gets to like, you know, yay, we've got bison. Um, The complexity though, is that bison have never given the disease to cattle um, in the wild. They, in, in a laboratory setting, they have proven that it is theoretically possible, but it's never happened elk have given the disease to cattle. Um, Almost every year, there's a case or two. Um, and, uh, And so I think a lot of bison advocates, you know, don't understand why the cattle ranching community have been very, very opposed to bison habitat expansion when they're not making that same argument about elk. And I think that's where it gets into the values issue. And that's just that Elk have always been free roaming. Elk hunting is a huge deal, both culturally and in a business sense for a lot of Montanans. And, um, it's just something that ranchers have accepted. Um, and they don't like it. It still takes a lot of work and money and incites fear in ranchers when they, you know, see Yellowstone elk. If there, if it wasn't Yellowstone elk in their cattle herd, it's a big deal. Um, But no one's trying to say like let's try to confine all the elk to a certain area, which is what they're saying with bison. I I mean, I think from their side, it feels like well, we've already got this one threat. Now you're gonna now you're imposing another on us. So why should we be okay with that? I think the the reverse side of the argument is like well, you've already got one threat in this way. Why is it? you know, why are you okay with it in this case and not okay with it in the other? And I think how you look at that just really depends on where you're coming from. You know, the weird thing though, is that, um, there, you know, only Yellowstone bison have brucellosis and not all of them do. Um, so there's bison restoration opportunities in other parts of from drawing from other herds. There's ways for bison to go through a quarantine process and you can Um, euthanize uh, any animals that have the, that are proven to have the disease over a period of time. And after it's a different amount of time for the different sexes of animals and where you catch them and all this kind of stuff. But basically they've got that all figured out so that animals that make it through that quarantine protocol could be declared brucellosis free and could be, we could use that portion of the herd to to regenerate herds elsewhere that would never fully eradicate the risk of brucellosis bison in certain areas, but we could... I just want to be clear for listeners that we could repopulate bison territory in all kinds of places with brucellosis free bison and and, and that is happening in some places. And this is where I feel like it also reveals what a values issue it is because the cattle community has been very opposed to that as well. And I think for some bison advocates, it starts to feel like, is there anything here that you can get behind? Like you, we understand the fear around the brucellosis, but like You're also opposed to these quarantine processes in many cases, and that, that doesn't, that would get us to a place with brucellosis, free bison. So what's the deal? And, and I honestly think the deal is, is that it just feels like, you know, this is not, this isn't what we want. We want a country that is, um, where we don't have to deal with another big wild animal that, um, is not very easy to control, um. You know, and I think that's where it really, that's when I was really digging on into all that is when I was like, I've got to go deep into the history here because this is such a direct line between this different worldview of like, is the world here for us to coexist with and learn from? And sometimes we're impacted by it. Sometimes we impact it back and forth, or is the world here for us to dominate and control and to make everything work um, the best it possibly can for us? Um, I don't want to paint too broad a brush. There's a lot of variety within the cattle ranching community. There are people who are opposed to bison restoration who are, who are not cattle ranchers. There are cattle ranchers who are pro-bison restoration. And even within the people who are against it, there's variety. You know, some people are like dead set against it no matter what. And some people I think are open to like, let's have them go through this quarantine process. And so I, I don't think it's fair to paint any community when, in like black and white terms. But um, But yeah, that's where the bulk of the resistance is coming from
2: totally yeah and, and and I mean I love the way that, that, that you sort of paint that as you know like well these are the arguments but really when it boils down to it I mean it's it's um, it's a values issue um, which is totally true I mean that's true of probably almost every like you know sort of conservation issue that is you know controversial in that way like you could break it down along those lines, you know, in almost every case, I'm sure. But really interesting. And I mean, some of the complexities that you discuss in the show are really fascinating, uh, you know, about the quarantine process and, you know, the the um, the reluctance of some people to like, you know, um, accept the idea of free ranging bison, you know, even, you know, even when you eliminate the threat of brucellosis. Um, I don't know. It, it it strikes me as like there's definitely a lot of similarities, I think, between that issue and a lot of the controversy controversy over wolf reintroductions. Right. And I think like in a lot of case, um, I've had a lot of conversations with um, my in-laws about the wolf issue <laughs> um, and. You know, uh, and, and I try to, like, sort of dig deeply into that, like, that perspective uh, of folks who are, like, adamantly opposed to Wolf reintroductions of, like, what's, like, what's really the source of this, you know? And, um, and I think it, like, a lot of what it boils down to, I think, is that, like, you know, we don't have that, like, historic, historic memory in the way that I think a lot of Native American communities do. You know, like there aren't we can't go back like four generations and say, like, well, my great great grandfather remembers the time when there were bison all through here. It's like, no, for the entire lifespan, the entire existence of said ranch, there haven't been bison here. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like my father in law saying, like, well, there weren't wolves here when I grew up. Therefore, they shouldn't be here. You know, it's like, okay, but. Go back a little, just a little bit, you know, more time. And there were wolves here, you know, it's easy to fall into that trap, right? Of picking an arbitrary point in the past and saying, I want it to be like this always.
1: Right, right. Which is something that um, sometimes environmentalists get accused of as well. Like, oh, you're going to try to recreate this certain time just because it happens to work for you. Um, I think that that's probably a legitimate con, you know, critique on all sides. Um, but yeah, I do think it's really, it's really important to note if nothing else, let's just try to notice what time we are picking, you know, like, um, just that awareness alone i think would do wonders for opening up the debate just to have a little bit more wiggle room for everyone to have a little more thinking space because i think a lot of people do start the clock of history when white people came west or you know in in this part of the world anyway um you know over and over not just around this issue but over and over and over you'll read something that'll say um, you know, the history of such and such town began in, you know, 1884. There'll be a sentence like Native Americans lived here for millennia. Then in 1884, here's an individual person who has a specific identity who did X, Y, and Z thing. Like now history begins. Everything else before then is sort of like, yeah, it's a big kind of mushy. We don't know what it was. Something was here. And I just think, you know, just having the awareness that that's a choice, that's a bias. And, um, for a whole lot of people who live in Montana, that's not when they start the clock. That's not when they start the clock at all. They have family memories that go back way, way, way further. And, um, that's important too. And I don't think that it's, I don't think it's a matter of trying to say like, well, one community's version of history gets to trump another, no pun intended. Um, but, uh, but just, can we have room for more than one, you know? And I think that that's, that's where it gets really complicated around the bison thing because we are in a different world now. We, we, we have carved up huge amounts of space and we're, we're probably never going to have 50, 60 million bison in North America again, at least not in the next 500 years with the number of people that we've got here. And, um, and I think it, sometimes people look at that and, and because they hear, bison advocates sort of, um, referring to that history, they assume that the only way that that we're in, that that's what we have to go for. Like, oh, these crazy environmentalists, they want, you know, the whole country full of bison. And it's like, well, there's a huge space in between that and Uh, less than 5,000 that are not allowed to leave Yellowstone National Park. You know, we have preserved enormous amounts of public land in this country, which is one of our hugest gifts. And um, at least from a certain perspective and um, a portion of that land is great bison habitat. And, you know, um, the biologists I spoke with said that in order to have a truly like ecologically sustainable herd, you need a minimum of a thousand and really to keep the gene pool healthy and to keep the, the species continuing to evolve as a wild animal, you probably need more like 10,000, you know? So what if we had a country that had four or five herds of 10,000 or more in different places, are they going to be walking through downtown Chicago or, you know, New York City or Seattle? No, but there's a lot of space in this country. And if we allowed them to inhabit it, what might that look like? And would there be some conflicts around the margins? Absolutely. Could we deal with them? I mean, as one person, i him saying, for God's sakes, Amy, we put a man on the moon. <laughs> like, I think we can figure out how to deal with these conflicts, you know, and I it's just but it's a matter of if you want to or not.
2: Yeah, totally, totally. Well, we could talk about bison forever, but um, I, I do want to move on because I want to hear about. Season two of threshold, um, so maybe you can like give us an update like tell us what you know what the topic is and sort of where you're at in developing season two. <laughs>
1: So season two is going to be all about the Arctic. Um, and we're going to go, I'm not sure at this point if we're going to go to all eight Arctic countries or not. That's in flux. i waiting, waiting, waiting to get a journalist visa to Russia. Um, so if I, if I am, then I think that we're going to all eight Arctic countries. Um, but uh, so far we've reported in Sweden, Norway, Greenland, Alaska. Um, my colleague Nick is going to call Canada in a couple of days. Um, And that leaves Iceland, Finland, and Russia. Um, And we're trying to tell, um, there are so many important environmental stories happening in the Arctic. There's no way that we could tell all of them. We're going to try to tell a few of the most important ones, but we're trying really hard to tell them from the perspective of people who live there. I would say that in general, that's something that we're aiming for with Threshold is to really bring people on the ground to where issues are playing out. And Because the Arctic is hard to get to and, you know, cold and often dark and expensive. um, There's a lot of storytelling about the Arctic. I would say the bulk of it, it happens from a distance from kind of from an armchair view and a lot of interpretation of the place through scientists, through explorers who don't live there and they have important things to say, but there are 4 million people who live in the Arctic and we want to hear from them and how they're perceiving their world and what's important to them. Um, and having, you know, integrating some of that on the ground knowledge with some of the, the larger scientific concepts, um, permafrost thaw and ice, sea ice melt and just the Arctic's role in our, in our world system. It's something that I really am gaining an appreciation for. Like you always kind of, well, increasingly we are hearing about the Arctic a lot, but until I went there, I think it still was pretty vague for me of like. I know it's important, but why <laughs> exactly? And it's just starting to get clearer and clearer in my mind. Like we, we need a cold Arctic in order to have human civilization as we know it. So we're going to try and tell stories about that. I had hoped that I was going to be able to release this season in May. And we just decided that we're actually not going to do that. We're going to push it back till next fall.
2: Have there been any like really standout sort of like revelatory moments or any like characters that you've interacted with thus far that, um, you know, really have a a super unique perspective?
1: So many interesting characters. I think I might leave them unnamed for now just so people can have the joy of discovery during the show itself. But um, standout moments. Um, well I I was so blessed to get to spend 5 days on the Greenland ice sheet. Like out on it with a science team totally blew my mind. It was just to to s- step out of a helicopter and walk on this enormous piece of ice. Um, you know, like to the horizon in all directions just the ice. It was mind-blowing. <laughs> and uh and it's It was really, it was honestly like kind of emotional for me because, um, you know, our species evolved with these huge ice sheets and we don't have very much ability to access them anymore when they're shrinking for one thing. And, you know, they're in Antarctica, which is even harder to get to or Greenland. And so just this privileged feeling of like, oh my gosh, like I'm on this thing that um, has been here for so long, it's so old. And uh, that was amazing. I think another amazing day was I spent the day in a fishing boat with a Greenland, um, uh, Greenlandic fisherman. tiny little boat out on the ocean, catching cod, trying to do an interview with my non-existent Greenlandic and his marginally existent English. And we, we had a great time. We spent like 13 hours out there, um, spending a day on top of a mountain with a Sami reindeer herding family in Norway was epic. Um, just just, uh, yeah, honestly, it's kind of hard to summarize because it was just kind of one peak experience after another. It was by the time the summer got done, I was exhausted. For, I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm so full of amazing stories and scenes. And so I'm still in the process of kind of trying to sort it all out my, my wall that you can't, see here is covered in little pieces of paper with little scenes, characters, ideas. And I'm just like, it's a giant collage mess right now that I'm trying to sort into episodes.
2: (laughs) Super awesome. I mean, well, um, I'm a little bit disappointed that I have to wait until the fall to to hear season two, but uh, (laughs) I will be anxiously awaiting um, the release of that. And uh, I mean, maybe at this point you can share with our listeners like, you know, some information about like where they can go to learn more about Threshold and, and, you know, get get updates um, as you continue to, you know, work through season two. And of course, for folks that haven't can listen to season one as well.
1: Well, thanks. Thanks for giving it such a great endorsement. Um, so the easiest way is just thresholdpodcast.org and there's a space to sign up for our mailing list on there. And we don't send out a ton of stuff, but we try to make it pretty fun when we do. And that's the best way to get the most updated, um, news on what's going on behind the scenes and when it'll come out. We're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, and we are not on Snapchat as of yet. I don't think we're going to be trying to figure that out. Um, um, let's see. Uh, oh, and we have a blog, um, which you can connect to through our website as well. Um, it's on medium. Um, but yeah, just going to thresholdpodcast.org is the best way. That's also where you can see the links to subscribe. You can find us on iTunes or if you're a Android user, pretty much all the apps well not all but a lot most of the major apps if you search for us will come up stitcher and i don't even remember the names of them all but you android people you know what you you know what you need to do (laughs) and if anybody is looking for us on a particular podcasting app that you love and you're not finding us i hope like let us know because we want to be we want to be easily accessible to everyone
2: yeah totally that goes for us too man yeah definitely um always good to get feedback you know um In in that respect of like, hey, this is the app I use, and how come you're not on there? Um, But we can figure those things out, right?
1: (laughs) I know it's really cool in the Android world that there are so many options, but it's also difficult for us podcast producers because it's like hard to stay on top of it all. But
2: totally, totally, stop paying attention for a few months of like, oh, look, there's all these new uh, ways to listen to podcasts. Totally, Um, awesome, awesome. Well. Thanks. uh, Thanks a ton for coming on the show. And I mean, sharing all these amazing stories. Um, Yeah, it's been a lot of fun.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening and for for liking it and um, just sharing it with your listeners. And and we'll be sure to do the the same with ours. And yeah, I just appreciate having a, a forum for some thoughtful discussion about this stuff. So thank you so much.